Hey guys, right now I'm talking to the most interesting man on the internet. Now this man is so interesting because people don't even know who he is or what he does or how he runs it. Now what I mean is everybody you think you know Scott Adams, oh he's a Dilbert guy. But I actually wasn't that into Dilbert until I read his book, How to Fail at Almost Anything in Life and Still Succeed. And I thought, this guy, he understands mindset, he understands persuasion, he understands the world more than pretty much anybody. And then I found his work writing about Trump, and I realized he sees things that nobody else sees. So I would like to introduce him and let him introduce himself. Hi, thanks. That was very nice of you. So it's interesting because, again, people call him the Dilbert guy, and I go, how dare you? You know, which is kind of a good problem to have. How dare you call this comic of 30 years that's been syndicated worldwide and is recognized everywhere as merely just a comic? I mean, that's a good problem to have, but really, I don't see you as the Dilbert guy or the cartoonist at all. You know, in my mind, I've always been an entrepreneur, and um, so my, my personal view is I didn't have any walls. Just Dilbert was the thing that worked first and best. Now, what I think you're really good at and that most people don't understand is you talk to all these people about Trump and persuasion. And let's just take a fundamental question that nobody asked you is, what is persuasion? What does it mean to you? Persuasion is, for me, it's the entire universe <clears throat> that goes from advertising to you know, marketing to hypnosis, you know, all the way to brainwashing at the far end. Um, and it's all the tools uh, that are a little bit common but uh, it's, it's the full set of tools. Including, for example, if you want to look right now, he's, either he is doing it or I'm doing it, there's unconscious mirroring going on now with body language. Maybe you want to tell them about that? Mm. Yeah, so um, one of the techniques in hypnosis is that you want to pace people or, or match what they're doing. And it doesn't matter what you're matching. It could be their, their position, it could be their breathing, it could be the types of words that they typically use that you would, you would copy them. But once you copy somebody long enough, they start feeling comfortable with you and they start thinking that the things you say make more sense than they used to. Because, hey, it's like it's almost coming out of my body. This, this person and I are on the same wave, wavelength. Which is what people call building rapport. We, we often hear, which is why I love what you do is, we all hear these things, oh, you gotta build rapport with people. You're like, yeah, I'm gonna go build rapport with people. What does that even mean? Well, if you're mirroring a person, you're mirroring their body language, mirroring the way they talk, now you're building rapport because they think, oh, I'm looking across from somebody just like me. Yeah, and it's slightly different than trying to make them like you, all right? So that would be you know, a whole different set of tools, which is useful too. I mean, people will be more persuaded if they like you, but that would be slightly different than the, the pacing and leading in the mirroring. And you learned all this, what, studying hypnosis? So I studied hypnosis when I was in my 20s, and that gave me interest in the, the field enough that it's been a, a lifetime of, of uh, observation and study and, and practice. And when you studied hypnosis, do you see Trump doing these same things? I see in Trump the best skill level I've ever seen as a persuader. But not only does he have the techniques of a good you know, marketer, a good salesperson, um, but he, he has the whole Trump persona, and that's powerful, and then he has the ability to say almost anything without shame and without fear of consequence, apparently. So those are very powerful um, tools, and, and his consistency and his, his unwillingness to apologize, for example. Uh, most people see that as a, a flaw, but in the world of persuasion, you eventually convince people that there's no point in asking you to change, because you don't apologize and you don't change. So to the extent that he can create that sense in other people's minds, it's a great negotiating advantage. 
Well, there even have been some studies where you have a confidence bias. So you'll take a guy, come in, and you'll say, how long is this line? And he'll say, oh, here's how long it is. He'll measure it. And then there's two other people at the table who are there to, to rig the experiment. And they'll say, no, 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 that's not how long it is. You can give a person a ruler, and they'll start to doubt themselves. And I think that's when people think, well, you're wrong. If you don't admit it, and you keep going at it, you force the other person to question themselves. Yeah, there's someone in my, my life that I, I won't mention who sometimes will say an untruth with such confidence, and it's a ridiculous truth, that I, I, I find myself questioning whether it's real. And you almost find yourself saying, it's not real, but I feel like I have to act like it is. And, and so you, you just split your brain in two. There's a rational one saying, that's not real, and then there's an irrational one saying, well, let's pretend it is. So you, you get that going. Well, and that's what Trump does, I think, and what you do and other people do is you bring people into your reality. Steve Jobs did it, right? Uh, yeah. Um, Jobs was famous for, for bending reality, and he was, he was probably the best um, persuader I've ever seen. The best example of that was when, if you remember, there was AntennaGate, so one of the yes. early iPhones. If you touched it just right, it, it uh, lost the connection. Now. For most products, if you said just holding it in your hand the wrong way would make it not work, that would just be devastating. But Steve Jobs goes on, I think it was a conference call with journalists, and he said, I'll paraphrase now, but he said something uh, along the lines of, um, you know, all, all smartphones have problems. Um, we'd like to make our customers happy. Here's what we're gonna do. He kept it really simple, but the first statement was the reality bending field. All the attention was on uh, Apple's problem. And as soon as he said, all smartphones have problems, I checked the next day and all the headlines were about the problems of other smartphones. So he changed the frame, he put it in context, and once you saw it in context, you said, oh, I thought that was a problem, but they all have problems. Right, which is great, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people watching, they don't really get it, you, you reframed the issue to where you want to talk about me and this is what Trump and other people are masterful with. Wait, you're talking about me and what I did wrong. Well, wait a minute, everybody does this. Right. And now when you do that, you've changed the frame and therefore you've changed the focus, which leads to what? Confirmation bias. Yeah, once you have people believing whatever your narrative is, then they're going to start, start seeing evidence for it, even if the evidence isn't real. Right. right, and then they say, oh, he was right all along. Who are we to question him? He was the smart guy after all. Right. Um, I, I'm getting people on Twitter um, tweeting me and saying, hey, look at this article, it's something you predicted, or it's just what you said, they must have copied you. And I'll look at the article, and it doesn't look like anything I've ever said or predicted, but people are starting to see it because I predicted other things correctly. And people, they kind of impose their own meanings on what you say also. Yeah, everybody's got their own filter. I, my, my basic philosophy of life is that our brains are not designed for reality. All right. We're, our brains evolved just to keep us alive. So you and I could have a completely different experience of reality. You could be believing you know, a different religion than I am, for example, um, and we could still have this conversation because it doesn't matter what's in your head. Your, your vision of reality doesn't come across and affect me that much. So I think everybody's got their own filter on reality, and you can adjust the filter. And you can suddenly just say, ah, I'd rather look at things this way. And if it works, it works. Yeah, I'm sort of the same way where 
I don't really care why something works anymore. I used to want to find this unified theory of everything, right? What is the theory of everything? And that's why I liked your, what you call it, the moist robot hypothesis. You want to explain that? So the, the moist robot idea is that humans are subject to the laws of physics uh, and that the things that are going to happen a minute from now are just guaranteed based on the millions of variables in the world. It, it has to happen. So we're essentially a complicated machine that just has biological components. And when you start seeing the world that way, um, you know, first of all, it's disconcerting for some people because it eliminates free will and your soul and, and all those things. But like I say, it's not about reality. You know, you can believe that reality if you like, but as a filter on life, if you just imagine that people are irrational machines that are reacting to stimulation in a way that you can learn to predict, because there's plenty of tests, we have lots of experience, we know if you push this button on people, they react this way, um, you get a better, a better sense of prediction, right? So the worst thing you can do for yourself to make yourself crazy and unhappy is to imagine that other people are rational even some of the time, all right? I, I've dispensed with all that. People are irrational all the time, but sometimes it makes sense to you, but that's largely a coincidence. Yeah, one of the best things I did for my own happiness level was when I realized if I'm close, if I'm really on point, maybe 10% of what I do in my life is within my control. It's probably more like 1%, and I found out that I became much happier because and I realized that sometimes you hit the right odds, sometimes you don't. And that's why I liked your book and what is different about your book than everyone else's. I'm tired of books saying, if you want to succeed, you need passion and purpose and vision. Where you say, eh, there are rules governing the world, you want to play the odds, but luck ultimately is going to be a large determinant. Yeah, so in a way I took the same um, science, if you can call it that, for investing and just moved it into your personal life. All right? uh, uh, an expert at investing would tell you, don't pick this one stock and put all your money in it. That would be like having a goal. And this is the one thing that I'm, I'm investing in. They tell you to diversify have lots of stocks, one of them, one of them uh, works, one of them doesn't, and you're okay on, uh, on average. But I, I would say do that with your skill level as well. So as you're compiling different skills, the more you have the better, and you don't know exactly where that's going. You don't know which of those skills will be important or which combination of skills, which is even more important, will be the ones that uh, you know, make the difference. Right, when you call that the talent stack, which I kind of learned on my own, which is, I'm a pretty good writer. Well, I ought to learn a little web design. Okay, I better learn social media. I better learn a little persuasion. And then suddenly what you realize is that all of these skills build on each other. And then that's why you do this, Trump does this, I do this a little bit too. We don't have to plan as much because when you have that foundation of skills. Stuff comes to you. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and life is gonna throw stuff at you anyway. So much of stuff is out of our control anyway yeah. that you're more prepared for that to happen. So. What would you tell people, especially younger people, or maybe people starting over, some essential skills that they need? Well, I think everybody has to build their own skill stack. There are some things I think everybody ought to do. Um, they ought to learn how to speak and communicate. They, they should learn how to make conversation with strangers. And these are all learnable things. The Dale Carnegie course is really good at all that stuff. Um, but beyond that, you should learn probably persuasion, because it just goes with everything, right? Um, you should learn at least enough about technology that you can communicate and understand websites and social media and, and that stuff. And a little bit about business without getting your MBA, a little bit about the law, etc. Mm -hmm. So yeah, everybody's individual stack should be different based on their situation, but usually 
start with one strong skill that's maybe not world-class and then see what you can build around that that fits your interests. So universally, I think we would agree then communication, persuasion, influence, kind of the psychology persuasion, pretty much everybody needs that, right? Well, yes, everybody needs that. And I would go further and say, you can really tell the people who don't have it because they're struggling. They're, they're frustrated with not understanding why people have different views than they do, why the logical thing they did didn't work out, why they had this one goal and it didn't work. So the world is a confusing place um, if you don't see it in terms of persuasion. So where would people start if they want to learn persuasion? Um, they could Google the phrase persuasion reading list and they would um, see a list that I put together of, of books, including um, some of mine. Um, but I would say if you're going to read one book just to get you started, you know, whet your appetite, yeah, the book is called Influence by Cialdini, C-I-A-L-D-I, I can't spell it. I can't pronounce it either. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, but just go, to, go online and look for a book called Influence. Yeah, I read that book in college actually kind of defensively to, to realize I had these other cognitive biases. And then I started to realize, oh, that's how they, the world manipulates me. <laughs> and then you can kind of start to think of persuasion as manipulation. But you said something, and I agree with this. There are certain things you won't do because of your personal ethics. Would you talk about that? Yeah, you know, um, once you improve your powers of persuasion to a certain level, you feel like you can almost convince anybody of anything if you have enough time. You know, really, you just need their attention long enough to do it. And clearly, there are things you should not be convincing other people to do, something that's just good for you, for example, and just not good for them. Um, and then things you don't know if it'll be good. I don't want to convince somebody just because I think it might be good. I, I want to be pretty sure. So unless something is unambiguously good for the world, um, I would prefer not using my, my persuasion technique. Now, do you see people using their persuasion for evil? Yes, um, I do. Um, <laughs> let me give you uh, a dangerous example, I guess. The biggest tech companies in the world, um, you can name them off, you know, Apple, Google, whatever. Um, they all have a similar and disturbing business model, which is they need to disturb you and get your attention from the other things that you would rather be doing, perhaps. But they use science of persuasion at a deep level. I mean, they're actually A-B testing, you know, did, did this headline get you, did this one, did uh, this beep, this app, this beep, um, until in my view, social media, for example, is so refined in terms of a persuasion method that it's manipulative to the point it's uh, addictive um, and really addictive, like, like a chemical. Yeah. And I can see it in myself. I mean, I'm completely aware of the influence. And I actually sometimes will have to create a second conversation in my head where I'm saying, put it down, who's in control, put this down, move your hand, move your hand, put it down, put it down. And that's somebody who's aware of the technique, mm -hmm. right? Imagine somebody just saying, well, I think I just like social media. Right. <laughs> I mean, I know this isn't coming from me. Right. This is coming from Google right. and Apple, and they're freaking scientists who are so smart, they can make me do anything with my hands. They're making my hands move the way they want. They're making me do this. And once you realize that, um, you have to pull back. But it's also why, you know, I would put uh, you know, a pretty strong box of ethics around my own motions because I don't want to turn somebody into a, you know, a button punching zombie. Yeah, Twitter, I used to get that way where you get that high, that first time you get the thousand retweets, and I'm like, wow. <laughs> and then I realized, okay, I'm defining my own identity based on 
social media likes. And that's what I like about your work. So let's talk about that a little bit. So one way to free the addiction is to not define your identity based on these dumb likes. But you kind of have to know, there's a lot to unpack there, right? But it's also a metric, yeah. right? We're in a business where you gotta see if the thing you did worked and how do you see it except look at your social media. I have the same problem you do, which is I look at it way too much. But there's also something about the immediacy. I respond to tweets almost right away um, that I think helps build an audience too. So there's that's, a, that's a how balance. I rationalize it. I rationalize it, it's personal branding. Yeah, all right, if you're watching Engagement. this, this is two people who understand rational thought and they know they're not doing it. But what option do we have, really? Right. Like, we have to live in the real world, and we recognize when we're rationalizing, but it doesn't allow you not to do it. You know, you don't yeah. have that option. You know, I'm engaging with my audience on social media because I'm building my personal <laughs> brand, and that's gonna lead to, you know, this, that, and, and everything else, yeah. I think the unethical thing I see online that I really don't like is the, the fear-based marketing. Oh my God, you have this problem. You're going to be broke now. Buy my $19, you know, $1,900 how to get rich on the internet scheme and you know, using sales funnels and you better act now within 45 minutes. You're going to lose it. I, I really don't like that kind of marketing. You know, nobody likes it, but it works. That's yeah. so. But I won't do it personally. So you just say, you know, based on that appeal, I'm, I'm going to reject you. That's a matter of my ethics. Yeah, because I think that. But if you need an iPhone. Yeah. Sometimes you just need an iPhone. You're, you know, you gotta buy I, it anyway. I don't like the idea of conning desperate people and selling people false dreams and false promises. That really, that just doesn't resonate with my own personal values. Yeah, there's, there, there's a limit, and but on the other hand, we're all marketing something, right? Yeah. So everybody's selling. But you feel good about what you do, though, right? I try not to market anything that I don't think is worth having at, a, at whatever the price is. And usually it's free in my case. But you wake up and you, here's what I notice that's different about you than most people. I've been around the game. Your marketing is on point, but it's invisible. Most people don't see it. Most people who market, they burn out. And I think that's because they don't feel good about what they're, they're selling. Like I feel great about what I do. I wake up every morning like, yes, this is great. I can't wait. And you look great, you know, you, you're running the game still, your energy's high. So what I like um, these days, and I think this is more of a recent internet phenomenon, is that marketing has kind of morphed into uh, usefulness. In other words, so my form of marketing right now is that I blog, I don't really get paid much except some advertising revenue, it's kind of trivial. Um, but everything I'm blogging about now is persuasion, which is useful, you can take it right off the page, apply it to your life. So that should, by theory, make people have a good feeling about me and be a little bit more open to seeing something else I've produced. So that's, that's marketing that is as ethical as you can get. I'm, I'm just doing something for you. Uh, likewise, I'm working on a startup. Um, our marketing will be that this is useful and you know, we're, we're really about utility. Yeah, I like that's the way the marketing is headed towards that kind of Seth Godin model, which is deliver value to people, don't hustle them, don't rush them through these annoying sales funnels anymore. Plus, you're not going to get the right customer. So back to being am I ethical or not is if you the kind of people you run through sales funnels are idiots anyway. And I happen to like the people who like my stuff. You know, I get to, you know, the people who find me, I don't, I don't hustle them. So I tend to like them. So I think liking your customer is good. See, but you have this weird balance, right? If you, if you think your product's good and you think people are better off with it, and we sort of all do. Right. And you have a choice of, you know, do I put the burnt orange button there that says buy it or right. do I do the green one? But I know the burnt orange is 13% better clicks. Right. 
I'm going to put the burnt orange. Right. I'm not hurting anybody, am I? But, no. I'm, but I'm still sort of manipulating them through the, 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 the funnel. I don't personally use manipulation as a descriptor of anything uh, because we're all manipulating everything all the time. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like air. Um, if you have evil intent, then people are going to say it's manipulating. Mm -hmm. But most of us don't. Most of us are trying to make a living and we think we've got a good product and we think you'd like it if you bought it. And, and you mean well. So you said something earlier which you kind of live by, which is be useful. Maybe expand on that for people who want to think about how they should live their own lives. Yeah, I think this comes from my upbringing. Um, my mother worked on, uh, she grew up in a farm and I worked on the farm a lot. And everything's about um, eliminating wasted anything, right? Everything's useful. You got to use every, every bit of your energy in a, in a productive way. So that just becomes part of you after a while. And I, I don't know if it's just me. If, I don't know if it's men in general. I don't know if it's people in general. But I feel biologically um, most in tune with my nature when I'm useful. Um, and I, I could make an argument that men have evolved as sort of a, um, I hate to say this, but a, a service class for um, this in the service of reproduction. All right, so we're, we're, not, the, we're not the main actor, we're the, we're the server bringing the food. Um, and whether you're actively doing something for reproduction or actively helping people in the world, which indirectly helps, it feels meaningful in a way that other things don't. So would you say now meaning more than money drives you? Well, I can say that now because I have enough money. So right. yes, um, I wake up every day and you know I'm usually working anywhere from four in the morning, five in the morning usually I start. I work on weekends most of the time and every penny I'll make for the rest of my life will be spent by someone else because I have enough for me. Like I, I couldn't spend it probably if I tried, it just would, it would bore me trying to do it. Um, but I can't imagine not working at any age until I'm unable because the amount that I can produce in economic value is, you know, as much as a village. So how do I, how do I let the village starve so I could sleep in that day? Right. Like how, how does that feel right? So uh, to the extent that I have an ability to make a larger impact on the world, that, that's hugely motivating. Right, which links us back to manipulation and the idea that I think men are manipulated too much by duty, where you, you're taught to act against your own self-interest out of this hardwired sense of duty we have, which makes men in a lot of cases disposable. Oh, you know, go fight this dumb war because it's the right thing. Yeah, here's, so here's my twist on that. Um, I promote, in, in my book you mentioned, that I had to fail almost everything and still win big, um, that you pursue selfishness for the benefit of others. Right? If you don't take care of yourself, somebody's gonna have to take care of your ass, mm -hmm. and you're not doing anybody any good by, by that. So I say, you know, go get your education, go get your money, take care of yourself. When you're stable, there's a natural thing that happens. And I believe it probably happens to almost everybody that when your own needs are taken care of, you just attention starts spreading out. It's like, okay, now about a family. Yeah, that's looking good. Family's looking good. What's happening in my town? And if you're lucky enough to have like a big audience or a big reach, you just start thinking globally because you think, well, if I could do something that would be a little bit good for six billion people, well, that's way better than five people. So I, I think some of that just happens. You look at Bill Gates, right? Started as you know the most capitalist person right. in the world, but fairly early on, I think he always planned this. He knew that this would just reverse and he would be 100% externally focused when he got everything he needed. 
Um, and aren't you glad he did? I mean, he's, he'll do things in Africa that you couldn't have done if he hadn't been super selfish in the, in the beginning. Yeah, I've sort of gotten that way where I lived a very sort of self-indulgent life of hedonism and every kind of debauchery people could imagine. And now I wake up, as, I'm like the most boring guy. I have this reputation on the internet. Like, man, if you saw how I live my life. The ordinary day. Yeah, I just, you wake up, you work. I don't, you know, I'm not going out doing things that people would consider whatever, hedonistic. I'm just trying to help people every day of my life. And that certainly has changed. I think the issue, though, is a lot of young people, especially young men, aren't taught you got to kind of take care of yourself first. You got to do yourself first. And that's kind of the manipulation I see. You hear people say, for example, you know, man up, but there's no sort of, I don't, and I don't want to get you into whole gender controversy, but you hear people a lot of times say, man up, man up, man up, and we don't hear enough people saying, hey, why don't you figure your own life out first before, <laughs> before you have to man up and take care of the family and the tribe and everyone else? Uh, yeah, um, I go so far as to say it's possible that marriage is the biggest problem in the world, but it's invisible because we're all sort of primed to like it. And historically it had its purposes and, and you know, people understand that. But at the moment, if, if you start looking at all the problems it may have caused, I mean, just potentially, if you look at um, the fact in the, in the Middle East that you know the important person is gonna have several wives, which leaves no mating opportunity for lots of men, right. what are they gonna do to find right. meaning? Well, maybe blowing something up gives right. them meaning. Um, it's very unpopular to say, uh, because we imagine it's about they used their reason and they looked at politics and they found some reasons and, right. or even religion. I don't think it's any of that. I think it's just basic biology. You take a bunch of angry young men, take away their mating options, give them guns in hot weather, shit's going to go down. Right. All right. It doesn't matter who you are or what your fucking religion is, shit's going to blow up. Right. Um, if you look at the economic well-being of people in the United States, you know, Half, I don't know, it's half of marriages ended in divorce. There's mm -hmm. kids involved. Everybody's fucked up for a while. You know, we're pretty good at getting over that stuff. Right. But it didn't happen, have to happen in the first place if we had some better systems. And we're not close to having any kind of better systems. But uh, it ought to be something we're thinking about because nobody can ruin a kid faster than a parent. Because you said something interesting. You say marriage is the biggest problem, right? But we also know that if the top alpha male gets all the women, all the betas and below him want to blow things up. So I kind of think that the reason Western civilization exists is because you have a nuclear family where pretty much any guy who isn't a complete loser can get a woman and any woman can kind of find a man and you get some kind of stability. So as bad as marriage is, it is controlling that male rage. Um, I agree that it's the best system we have. What I'm suggesting is it wouldn't take a ton of work to find a better one. All right, um, and we're largely primed by you know our our upbringing, our religion, or whatever. That um, the only way to raise a kid is that you you got to be hands on the two of you. I'm not, I'm not sure the kids love it, and I'm not sure that the average parent is qualified compared to let's say a a trained teacher or, or something like that. Um, so I, I would just go so far as to say that marriage is deeply overrated and there should be some alternatives for some types of people. I don't want to eliminate it. Marriage is always going to be perfect for some people, just not all of us. Yeah, I think the nuclear family that we do without the extended family is kind of lunacy where the man and woman have to be, to be together all the time and do it over this kid. And the woman wants to talk about things that doesn't interest a man, whereas in an extended family, 
you know, the woman and, and her mom can talk and the, the, the men can kind of talk, but people don't want to hear that, hey, maybe men and women want to be in separate rooms sometimes talking about different things. So um, imagine more of a, uh, a tribal approach, all right? So if you, if you see what makes kids happy, they don't mind being around adults if there's maybe lots of adults and lots of kids, you know, it's just a big happy environment sort of a tribe. But kids don't love being with their two parents yelling at them yeah. from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed. And you end up just sort of developing this dislike for each other that was n never necessary. Yeah, when I was a kid, I, I wanted to be with the other kids. I didn't want to hang out with the adults. So I was luckily, I grew up in a very sort of religious fundamentalist home. But the good thing is we didn't go to real churches. We had home churches. So all there'd be, you know, 10 different families in the house. So wow. us kids would just be all doing our kid stuff. And it was actually pretty cool, yeah. despite the, the religious brainwashing. Just you would kids and you'd kind of run around like wolves outside <laughs> and playing with sticks and, and hitting things. And that was way more fun. And I, I see a lot of people that raise their kid. And I think, God, that must suck. So a lot of it has to do with, you know, you get married, you have a family, you need a house or apartment or whatever it is. And then you just have these walls that are keeping you from other human beings. Mm -hmm. And the thing that makes everybody happy is access to other human beings. Right. So marriage creates buildings with walls, which makes you stay inside because you're doing stuff with the family. So it's, it's really removing the greatest happiness a human can have, which is interaction with other humans. The social animal. So what solution would there be system-wide? <clears throat> Uh, I always default to, as my first statement, everyone's different. So some people should keep their marriage exactly the way it is. I'm sure it works for a lot of people. But there are a number of people who probably need some more, uh, let's say, contract system or more uh, loose social structure, um, tribal. Um, I know, for example, a lot of single people who have kind of cobbled together something like a family mm -hmm. from people who live in different places. And, you know, there's somebody who can fix something in your house, answer this, watch your kid, take care of your dog. And they're very successful. Nobody complains about any of that. Mm -hmm. They're pretty happy with it. So I, I think there's some version of that improved that could be useful. Okay, so now, like it or not, because you're kind of, you view yourself as sort of an engineer and you're understanding the world. People look to you for advice, mentorship, wisdom even. What would you tell people who are thinking about marriage or family or any of these difficult social systems? <laughs> um, I, I always go back to, you know, I, I can't give advice for someone else because the biggest part of that advice is how they feel. And I don't know that. It's also true in our world that sometimes you've got to let people make a mistake because you can't get, you just have to do it. Um, so I, I usually avoid giving anything that would be categorized as advice for an individual. Mm -hmm. Rather, I say, it's better to diversify to do this just in general. This may or may not apply to your specific case. So, so I try to keep my knowledge transfer general in a way that people can use it or not use it, as opposed to say, you, Bob, should marry this woman or not marry this okay, woman. Okay, so I'll give you an example. My general advice to men because I tell people I don't understand what a woman should live her life as. I say, if you're a man, you're probably gonna fall real head over heels in love when you're 25. Don't marry when you're 25, don't even think about it. If you wanna get married, you need to live a nice sort of self-indulgent life for maybe five, 10 years. And then when you're 30s, think about marriage. As a general rule, not applicable to everyone. Good advice, bad advice, where can that be tweaked? I know several people who accidentally or by bad planning had kids real, real young. 
Um, and they have the advantage of being like in their mid-30s and free. Mm -hmm. And by then maybe built up some resources and that's a pretty good life too. So to your point, everybody's different, right? Um, so I would modify your advice to say, I would make it non-advice by this modification. I would say, you realize half of the people got divorced. Right. 100% of them thought they would not be in that half. Right. I found that that reasonable argument works with no one. <laughs> because you know what they say? Well, I'm in the half that won't. Everyone. Well, it goes back to persuasion, the cognitive biases we tell ourselves. Ask everybody, are you an above average driver? Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, 85% of people are above average drivers. 100% of people who are married are, because in your own mind, your irrational mind, well, we believe we're special. And that goes back to, I guess, egotistical. Because in a way, you know, and you've written about this before, is you have to be a little bit egotistical or you wouldn't feel like you had a meaningful life or any reason to live. Yeah, there's a fine line. I, I use my ego as a tool as opposed to a, sort of a character flaw. So there are times when pumping it up actually in, improves your body chemistry, your testosterone, and your performance. So if you want to perform well, building up your ego is a pretty good deal. If you don't want to offend people who have weaker egos, you need to tamp it down <laughs> in some social situations. So how do you deal with that? So a lot of times you're going to be the sort of, you're going to be the highest status man in the room. How do you deal with people not being jealous or hateful? What, what's your key there? I always offer beverages. By the way, would you like a beverage? No, but you offered me one. You did offer one earlier. Thank you. As soon as you walked in? Yeah. Um, that's a real thing. Right. Um, well, first of all, any host is going to offer a beverage. Right. But in terms of uh, making people comfortable, um, the first thing I do is say, I'm your servant. Mm -hmm. And what can I do for you? Right. And, and in fact, you saw in this, this interview, um, I, I'm as accommodating as I could possibly be. Right. Uh, that's all you can do. You can just, the, if people are looking at you as important because of something you did in your career, mm -hmm. first of all, I don't internalize that. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, when people talk of themselves in the third person. I didn't understand that for a long time mm -hmm. until I became a third person because I see the, the character of my professional career right. almost like uh, somebody I can observe, not somebody that is me. Right. Um, so I, I kind of don't take it too seriously and I make sure that other people know that. Yeah, I, I noticed I learned from Arnold Schwarzenegger of all people is he's this big, huge hulking guy. And the first thing he would kind of do is try to make the other person the center of attention. So if you ever watch his body language, attention's naturally gonna be directed to him. So he'd be like, wow, look at this guy here. And he would immediately physically make his body smaller, put all the center of attention on you. And then people think, oh, Arnold isn't this big, hulking, monstrous guy. He's this great guy. And that was kind of a trick that he would use on people. I also learned early on that when it comes to um, famous people, people will come up with only two possible opinions of them if they meet them in person. Nice guy, and they always use that phrase. It's a nice guy, or like regular guy, right? Right. Or asshole, mm -hmm. you know, or jerk. There's nothing in between right. if you're famous, because they're going to walk away with one of those two impressions, and the impression that they get in the first 30 seconds is going to be the one they walk away with. Mm -hmm. you know, it's hard yeah. to change it. Yeah, a good metaphor for that is grounded or being down to earth. It's always cool. Oh, yeah, I met this guy. He's sort of down to earth. And it's interesting. So do people ever kind of 
because even me and just my little you know world people will meet me and you can see their cheeks are like rosy red or whatever the the <laughs> unconscious flushing and pupil dilation which is uh, for me it was took a little while to get used to and yeah, they can't talk for a while yeah they're yeah they're tongue-tied or something so do you, do you have that happen yeah yeah um and book signings especially because mm-hmm. they're they really built themselves up for that moment they're right. standing in front of you um yeah i mean i think i just enjoy it because it means that they're having an emotional um, experience that I'm sure they'll like. Yeah. So to me, it's just all good. Yeah, when I met Jerry Spence for the first time, I had that sort of deer in the headlights look, that fight or flight response. Yeah. And so he goes, big gruff guy, come here. And he puts his arm around you and that was sort of his way to build rapport. So I think it's kind of interesting because mm-hmm. even though what we're talking about is in theory fame or your personal brand, it relates back to persuasion building rapport with a person, and that's what people don't see that Trump does. Trump doesn't go up there and just talk to people. What Trump does is he builds rapport. Oh, look at that guy, look at that. Oh, well, this guy said this, and can you believe it? He's making eye contact, and he's, he's working a room from the stage. And nobody else who's running for office, maybe Bill Clinton a while ago, Obama, when he runs for office, is very good. Obama, as a president, it's a little bit, there's a two little different bit. disconnect, but did you see that in Trump also? Yeah, my favorite uh, Trump personal connection moment was, I think, a town hall a few months ago on CNN, I think it was. And somebody in the question, uh, somebody in the audience asked a question about, I don't know, some businessy thing. And what he did was he explained it like a businessman to a, a student. Mm-hmm. And then when he, was, when he was done and the host was starting to change the question, he looked, at the, he looked directly at the person in the audience and he goes, you know, for confirmation, he goes, you get that, right? And you just made it completely personal. It was, uh, yeah, I see him doing that all the time. Which is interesting. So did you know much about Trump before he ran? And the reason I bring this up is I had maybe watched one season of The Apprentice 15 years ago and I had no real conception of him. So when I first saw him running, I go, oh, you know, what's, who is this guy? I had really no idea. And right away I go, okay, this guy has it. The, the it factor, the vibe, saw it right away. or whatever. It, did you kind of see that right away in him? Um, well, I've been following him, you know, not, you know, not with any uh, effort. Right. He's just always everywhere. So I've always been fascinated with his approach to his fame um, and how he was using it as branding tool. So I guess I've always had it under my radar, but not, not as much as now. Was it something that stood out to you when you thought, aha? This guy, when he was running, where you thought, okay, this is it. Well, I, I knew he was a good communicator and popular and all the things that everybody else knew. My, my moment that was just the, you know, when the switch just flipped was during the first debate when he, um, he was asked about his, his uh, horrible sexist comments when Megyn right. Kelly, Megan Kelly asked him that. And he, he did what almost no, no one could have done this. It was just the greatest, most brilliant, persuasive move. His answer was, only Rosie O'Donnell. Yes. He sucked the life out of the room. He made everybody who didn't like Rosie O'Donnell, which was his base, right. love him for it. It was funny. They liked it. It made the question irrelevant because the answer was more interesting than the right. question. And it just, and he, and he, he ran out of time. And then he did the other brilliant thing, which is uh, she said, Megan Kelly said, but you've said about other people do. Instead of denying it after he had this great laugh and people were on his side, he just sort of quietly said, I'm sure I have. Yeah, and then he reframed. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's, the thing I like what he did is he did so many different things that you can analyze that moment. One is he made in-group, out-group. We're now making Rosie O'Donnell 
the joke. He changed the focus from I'm a sexist pig who makes these jokes. Right. No, no, we've outgrouped Rosie. And then he did the reframe, which is, well, this is why America has this problem. Yes. He You're worried right about tweets. Political correctness. Yeah. yeah he, so he made it work for him. Um, I, I also describe that as redirecting energy. Mm -hmm. So the energy comes in, it's on him, and he just goes, whoop, Rosie O'Donnell. And, uh, and you see him do that all the time. The other time he did that, my best example was uh, also CNN interview. He was asked about the Pope's comments about capitalism. Pope had some negative things to say about capitalism. Now here's a trap, right? So Trump can't say, um, I don't like capitalism, but he can't say the Pope is wrong. Right. Two, it's a no-win no, no situation. So Trump does what only Trump can do, and he says, I would tell the Pope to worry about ISIS taking over the Vatican. Right. Because <laughs> uh, all the energy goes to that visual image that's like a movie, you see it, it's got, it's got religion and famous people, it's got violence, it's got, you know, you can see it and things are blowing up and oh my God, they're precious artifacts. You can't get your head out of the Vatican. As soon as you put your head in the Vatican with ISIS, you're trapped there for a while, you're not getting out. Right, which, which you learn in persuasions, visual metaphors are the most powerful. And then you learn too about the power of focus. Everybody again wants to focus on this issue, the Pope said X. Well you can, most people they answer the questions directly. Two dimensional, you'd call it two dimensional persuasion. Right. Trump is, I don't care what your question is, I'm gonna talk about whatever I wanna talk about. Oh and if you wanna pin me down, which unfortunately he wasn't able to do with Chris Matthews and the whole <laughs> punish abortion question. He was, Chris Matthews is hard to do that too because he's good in his own way. He's good. But then Trump changes the focus, but doesn't that kind of apply to persuasion in your own life? I call it, I say that, you know what guys, I have brainwashed myself into believing in myself. And people go, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, you can change the focus too in your own life, right? Yeah, um, one of the biggest self-improvement tricks is that you become whatever you tell yourself you are. Um, you know, you can convince yourself of just about anything over time. So, um, you know, I, I, earlier um, uh, today I was saying that uh, I think of myself as an entrepreneur, not a cartoonist, but a lot of that is because that's what I want to be. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's allowed me to consider things outside my field and think that I deserve to be there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's worked out because I've managed to lead my field a few times. And that's how you define your identity? I do because it's the biggest identification. Or it's, the, it's the widest thing. It gives me the most freedom. What, you know, what's an entrepreneur? Somebody right. does a new thing that hasn't been done in a new field or something like that. It's kind of anything. Right. But you notice a lot of people, one, one thing I, in my line of work is a lot of people, they define their identity based on their lowest point. So let's say, oh, I'm a bad person because I was a bad father, or I, I did this, or a writer. And I've noticed that you, and that's a matter of focus too, you choose your own identity, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I don't know if I've ever been terribly concerned about anybody else's identity. I mean, you know, if somebody has bad things to say about you, nobody's completely um, invulnerable from that. But uh, I've always thought it's a branding kind of a thing, mm -hmm. as well as a self-branding and a self-talk talk yourself into what you want to be. Yeah. And I think kind of to wrap it up, I think that's the beautiful thing about being a person is you can use this irrationality to your advantage. People want to define me as all these kinds of things on the internet, mean labels. I can choose to let them define my identity or I can define my identity for myself, right? Well, you're fighting against social media, so that's always a, that's always a big dragon. But uh, yeah, it would be crazy to let them define you if you have the option of doing it yourself. Great, so do you have any, I know you don't like to do this because you don't see yourself as the advice giver, but 
people look to you for advice. Do you have any kind of parting words for the people? General advice. Um, I would say, uh, well, I hate to sound commercial, but because people ask me for advice so often, that's why I wrote the book I wrote. I tried to put everything that's useful in one place. But if I had to give people, you know, if I had to pick from that, I would say think of the world as a system and not as a series of goals. In the old days, goals made sense. It was a simple world, and if you picked a goal, it probably made sense when you got there and you're happy you got it. Today, things are changing too fast. So the goal that you have today might make perfect sense, but only for 10 minutes. So if you're dedicating your whole life to that thing, it's a moving target that you may not be happy if you hit it. So I say build up enough skills and um, put yourself in enough situations. You know, um, I, I like to use the phrase, you know, being good out loud. You know, don't be good silently. Make sure people can see whatever it is you're good at. And then just increase the odds that something good is going to happen. So it's about diversification, managing your odds. Well, and I'll plug your book before we go because it was one of the best books I read last year, maybe the best. Create the Talent Stack, right? Yeah, the Talent Stack put together those things that work together in combination, but you don't have to be the best in the world at any one of them. They just work together well. My example is that I'm a, a bad artist and I'll never win a pool of surprise, but I can write well. I can draw better than most people. I've got some business knowledge and some other things. You put them together and you've got a world-class comic strip without having any world-class individual talent. And we both agree, start with persuasion. That's the base of your talent stack. It's the thing you should understand before you even bother to learn the rest, I would say. Great. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you.